Hi, everybody. I'm George, and this is The Best Little Horror House in Philly, the show where we talk about the best horror movie ever made, according to our guest, at least. And I'm psyched to have today's guest. He's a great actor, writer, comedian, and a host of the recently revived Dark Weeb podcast, which I'm thrilled about. Please welcome Brody Reed. How you doing, dude? Hey, what's up? We're constantly reviving over at the Dark Weeb. We are <laughs> constantly dying and constantly uh, reviving. <laughs> hey, it wouldn't be a, a, a comics-centered thing without it, right? Yeah. Was, <laughs> dang, that's a good point, actually. <laughs> we try to make it as casual as possible because me and Cody, especially Cody, are like pretty busy. You know, he's writing on Rick and Morty, so it's it's a good excuse for us to just be lazy <laughs> and take a, a week off. And then we always want to have cool guests and then they're always busy but if we're if we're updating regularly it does it means that we don't have a lot going on which is (laughs) you know so it's a blessing and a curse absolutely so i mean you guys talk about comics and and anime and stuff all the time on the show but how did you get into horror you know where where did that come from i think you know it's definitely something that's like not necessarily instilled in me from childhood like when other kids were getting into horror I was like, no thanks. I was like, it's too scary, it's too gross. I remember I didn't even get into Resident Evil, the series, until like Resident Evil 4. Because I'm just a, you know, I was a fucking casual. (laughs) (laughs) Then, I don't know when it happened exactly. I mean, like, it always something I was like passingly interested in. And then I realized I wasn't nearly as hardcore as so many other people um, (laughs) um, who I ended up becoming friends with. And then I kind of like, I'm not sure when it happened, but probably around my late 20s, which I was just thinking about this the other day of just like, (laughs) one of the things that I like to do when I'm having like an antisocial episode is I'll get like really into, say like Grand Theft Auto um, (laughs) 5 or something. You ever play Grand Theft Auto 5? Yeah, man. It's the perfect kind of game to just throw yourself into. It is if you like, you know, fast cars and crime and stuff like that. But like for me, what it was is I really like ragdoll physics. I really, (laughs) I really like watching just like random people get like shot, which like (laughs) sounds so fucked up. But so for the listener who can't see us on the Zoom call or whatever, I am, I'm goth (laughs) and I'm constantly thinking about mortality, constantly scared about death. And there's something about horror as well that it turns your imagination and just makes it just a real thing. So like, even though it's like something could be really fucked up and gory on a certain level, your brain is just like, oh my God, I don't have to imagine this. (laughs) Right. And so many ways that are much worse. I have like um, a, 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 a thing of reference for it it's it becomes a real thing mm-hmm. it becomes a thing that i can like overcome my fear of so it's that kind of thing where it's like if you can name it you can overcome it and you yeah. see it and you say all right i see how this would shake out how can i get around that now damn free therapy for the listeners <laughs> exactly <laughs> so yeah i think it really started for me when like i was really into um Oh God, there's a series and I'm trying to think of what the name of it is, but there's a couple like really fucked up books that you could check out too. If you're like into kind of like cosmic horror and stuff like that. Um, mm-hmm. Like, um, oh, God, I'm trying to remember the name of it, but are you aware of the Canterbury Tales? Do you know what that oh, yeah. is? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You sick fuck. You know about the Canterbury Tales. <laughs> of course. Hey, me and Chaucer go way back. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> 
Exactly. So there is a Hyperion Cantos, which is this sci-fi series that takes the Canterbury Tales and just has this like really kind of like fucked up element in it where five of the last human beings left on earth this takes place like far in the future are just being like tortured over and over for millennia oh shit and yeah it's really like fucked up and the the reason i know about it is because someone made like a point and click adventure game <laughs> of it oh, um which is just as fucked up as the novel so i always got kind of got like really into just the idea of like weird social experiments like i really the first horror series i super super got into was um cube which oh yeah <laughs> i, I want to talk about on the podcast but I, I think you've done it already right i was the one who picked it because oh. i love cube as well and Dude. finally i had had enough and i said we're talking about cube on the damn show i had a very short relationship with a girl where essentially we just watched the cube movies and <laughs> stopped dating when we stopped having cute movies to watch so it was, it was like two weeks the relationship declined with the quality of the cube movies <laughs> yeah <laughs> exactly and i just love the idea of god i don't know just waking up in like a weird fucked up torture scenario and just seeing like because i'm the kind of person who like if my life is going great and i have no problems i have no challenges i will just want to die you you know what (laughs) i mean like that's where my like brain defaults so seeing someone in a situation where life is just absolutely hopeless and then Mm -hmm. like wanting to do anything to survive sure. first of all Pull himself up i'm just like what this is so <laughs> alien to me so yeah <laughs> i guess that's my long way of answering your very first question so <laughs> i think that makes a lot of sense like i said i love cube part of what i love about it is the idea of like is someone watching them like are they able yeah. to work together can they overcome <laughs> what's what's between them in, in order to serve the greater good yeah and a lot of times the answer is no just the <laughs> A huge amount of effort went into building it just to drop Mm -hmm. some people into it. (laughs) It just seems... It's so elaborate, and that's exactly why I like the Saw franchise, but, like, (laughs) ironically, the Saw franchise is so much more realistic than (laughs) Cube. (laughs) So you mentioned that it wasn't it was it took a while for you to get into games like resident evil yeah are you into horror video games now because i still have a really tough time with them myself yeah i sort of have a a a fondness to them these days during the pandemic especially i got really kind of into them i got really into the resident evil 2 and 3 remakes sure because they're available on pc and you have an easier time with those because those are third person and you like see someone uh not you like running away from (laughs) situations and you can distance yourself yeah and the thing about those games is that like you gain power throughout every resident evil game so like you are dominating near the end with like rocket launchers (laughs) and stuff like that instead of just running away from everything and i got really into those games for some reason just because of the atmosphere and even with like older throwback games i really like um that whole that whole like ps1 aesthetic i'm just like yeah. really oh, enraptured yeah, that by that big pixels <laughs> yeah totally and but the the first person games resident evil 7 and the new one that came out mm-hmm. too scary too I, much too much i don't know what is by to the side of me and that that scares me <laughs> 
creepy <laughs> gotta have those peripherals yeah. yeah exactly i remember when i was in college i was playing that game outlast with one of my roommates and that sounds familiar it, it, you have you're just like a video camera you don't okay. have any weapons or anything and the idea is like you have to look through the video camera and use like the the like night vision on it, and that's the only way you can really see anything. Scary, yeah. Scary as hell. Adding one degree of complication <laughs> to uh, being aware of a monster immediately makes it more scary. Yeah. And something dropped down from the ceiling, very close to the yeah. beginning of the game, and I screamed. And my scream scared my roommate, and he screamed. And that that his scream, like hearing something behind me screaming, just absolutely made me lose it. I genuinely fell off the chair. Yeah. And I just hear from downstairs, door slam, thump, 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 thump. Oh no! Someone slams open the door. Is everyone okay? And my buddy Jerry is just greeted by me on the floor with friggin' Outlast there, a testament to my shame. That's hilarious. <laughs> That's great. So, would you say that that sort of like social experiment is is your favorite subgenre? Does it is it really only these kind of physical torture ones, or do you like stuff like um, the Invitation, where uh, it's kind of like uh, mm-hmm. a little more psychological torture? I mean, even when it's about physical torture, for me, it's about the psychological torture. Like, mm. I think it's I think partly it's because I'm just a millennial who has played video games my whole life, like. <laughs> It's, I think it's just really fucked up how desensitized we are to certain things. And like I said, like, you know, sometimes I'll just like watch an hour of gore mods on Grand Theft Auto and then I'll have to like ask myself, like, is this extremely <laughs> fucked up? Is, is, what am I doing here? Yeah, it's just, it's just, just, just like things that serial killers do before they <laughs> do that thing that they do. But, um, <laughs> but then I just have to, <laughs> it's so, cause I'll watch it and I'll watch it like it's an ASMR video. Like it's like really calming <laughs> or something like that. So it's like not about the horror for me. It's just, I don't know, like meat to me is meat. And, but the psychological part is, 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 is really where it comes down to. Like when mm. you make someone make a choice and it's a fearic victory, no matter what, like that's, mm. that's good stuff. Hell yeah. Yeah. One of the things I like to ask comedians who come to the show is about their opinion on horror comedies. If for the most part you think it's a good time, or if you think it's kind of too hard to thread the needle between the shifting tones. Horror comedies, like, what are some examples? <laughs> um, well, I mean, I guess that there are varying degrees, even. Like, yeah. Evil Dead, uh, Evil right. Dead 2 is kind of a horror comedy, but yeah. there's also stuff like Cabin in the Woods, which leans a little further on it. Oh, yeah, um, totally. I mean, I'm pro. I think I think literally every genre benefits from a little bit of humor, whether it's Star Wars, whether it's um, some kind of thriller, you know what I mean? I think it's just, like... It, it it adds touchstones for audiences to like remember things that are going in. Like there are so many movies I watch from just like this could have been funnier. <laughs> and just because it has like two or three jokes in it doesn't mean it has to be like classified as a comedy. I think so many things about movies are stupid. So I I'm I'm all for it. Yeah. <laughs> the movie we're talking about today is Saw 6. Hell yeah. A huge shocker of a movie to come so late in a franchise, but in my opinion revitalized a flagging one because mm-hmm. I 4 and 5 are kind of low points for me in the franchise. Oh, but really? 6 <laughs> Yeah, and then 6 kind of comes out of nowhere for me and really is mm-hmm. like oh, this fucking rules. <laughs> okay, <laughs> like, just just for context, I haven't seen I didn't see any Saw movie up until like three months ago where I was just like, let's do it. HBO Max, yeah. Spiral's coming <laughs> out. So I watched all of them 
in the span of uh, like a week and a half. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the first two, I, I you know, I know about Saw. I, I think I've seen Saw 1 before. But then the first two, I'm just like, okay, I'm not that impressed. I get it. It's, <laughs> it's a serial killer movie, blah, blah, blah. And then the most impressive part about the franchise for me is just the logical consistency and... Mm-hmm the boldness to kind of like tell one long story over six movies mm-hmm. and then like have callbacks for like i'm i'm the kind of person who i like if i see a movie like i'll make a chart i'm just like ooh, what's the <laughs> timeline on this <laughs> like you know what i mean i really like that kind of stuff um so then you know by saw three i was super into it in general and it all kind of like blurs um together for me like when when you hit me up about doing this podcast you were like, let's do Saw 6. And I was just like, actually, let's do Saw 5 because that's the one with the insurance salesman. That, and I like that. And you were like, no, that's 6. I'm like, oh. <laughs> so I, com- <laughs> I I completely forgot a movie somewhere in the middle of that. But that being said, this one absolutely is the best one. I think thematically, they all kind of like lo- loosely try to gather stuff together. Like, you know, there's like um, reformed or, or like they have ex-cons in the second one. And then they're, they have like, I don't know, I forget, I forget what's going on. <laughs> There's like family <laughs> dynamics and stuff. Yeah. In three, the kid got killed by, uh, by the car and he has to like decide mm-hmm. if he can forgive him at the end. And oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then, I, yeah. <laughs> and then the one before this one was the one with the cop and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think four and five and six mm-hmm. are like a kind of a trilogy within the saw story even though it does associate like it has obviously amanda from part two Uh is a huge part of all of these yeah but that's where that's where strom and and hoffman come into play is in four i think yeah (laughs) it is it's funny because they do kind of blend together yeah but what you remember is like the set pieces and that's kind of what this franchise is predicated on yeah is like let's get these I mean, there's there is the interesting storyline following the whole way through, and that is something that is very impressive about mm-hmm. it. This I don't mean this to be a slam because I'm it's not. Welcome I think it's kind of like a soap opera. Uh-huh. Oh yeah, it's absolutely a soap opera. Yeah, you get these characters who are like super villainous mm-hmm. or or you know covering up their true intentions, and there's all kinds of intrigue and stuff, and then so you get that storyline carrying you through, and that's. You know, it w- we wouldn't need that much to carry us from set piece to set piece. And then the fact mm-hmm. that we do get these great storylines and, and these fun characters to follow along yeah, and explore those dynamics that are constantly changing from movie to movie, I think it's great. I, I like the Saw franchise. Yeah. And I know that it, it gets plenty of hate. You know, there are a lot of people out there who are not into it, and I get it. It is gory, and that's not for everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that there is also a lot more to offer in the franchise than people give it credit for. Yeah, absolutely. When I when I watch all of them, I'm like kind of shocked at how so many of the traps surprise me. I'm just like, okay, what are they <laughs> going to do next? And then <laughs> like it's always something that's really creative that I honestly would have never thought about. And <laughs> the way that they are willing to tell the story is pretty interesting too because a lot of horror movies you just... You know, you find out there's a bad guy, there's a good guy, it's a chase. Mm-hmm. And in this one, it's like, you know that the bad guy is going to win at the end for sure, but like, they will still keep secrets for you. I remember 
the third movie especially um at first i hated that movie that's the one where <laughs> um the doctor gets kidnapped the surgeon and she has to yeah. perform the uh you know the brain surgery on um jigsaw and stuff and that movie at first i thought was like this shit is a mess i was like angry going into the third act and then the third act um just like has a flip in the story structure of it where you find out these two separate storylines are two characters who are like married and stuff and then it immediately like switched a flip for me i was just like okay i think this one is the favorite one that i've seen so far (laughs) and then um this movie six um does a very similar thing and i don't want to like get too ahead of myself but like i already liked this movie just based on the theme and then i ended up liking it as well just because of it genuinely surprised me with the with the twist and yeah. i think part of that was because i wasn't super paying attention <laughs> to the first act as much <laughs> <laughs> um yeah i think that that is also something that the saw franchise is really good at is these moments that just make you recontextualize everything you've seen up to that moment yeah um you know a, a one one puzzle piece drops in wow. to uh to to crib from him can't believe you did <laughs> but, that <laughs> And, uh, and you know, it, everything becomes clear. Part of what helped also make this movie effective is that it's the directorial debut of uh, Kevin Grutert, who had served as the editor of all of the previous movies. So oh. considering that how much not only this one particular installment, but the series as a whole relies on these flashbacks and dramatic reveals and everything, his familiarity with the series itself and the most effective way to handle these moments, I think, helps to create a movie that works really well to catch new viewers up remind old viewers what has been happening up to this point and still keep things moving forward. It never really feels like they're like, okay, do you remember this part now? It all mm. feels like it's, it's part of a cohesive story yeah. while still making sure that you're aware of everything you need to be aware of. Wow. I did not know that. Good job, Kevin. Thank you so much. <laughs> Big ups to Kevin. Um, <laughs> I also saw that uh, in the early stages of script writing, that there was a plan for Jigsaw to take on the mafia in this one, oh, which I thought would have been uh, quite quite the crossover that we've all been waiting for. I'm sure. <laughs> I I'm really interested to see, first of all, which mafia. Um, <laughs> like if it's an Italian mob, that would have been funny. Yeah, um, good fellows in there. Like, how are you going to punish? <laughs> that as well too i don't know <laughs> like if jigsaw just shoots you with a bunch of guns yeah who knows hey we it could still happen maybe they just put it on a shelf that could have been funny to get some mafia theme <laughs> the next jigsaw uh, kills just like you've died you, know, <laughs> you, you put cement ankles on on all their victims tonight it's you who sleeps with the fishes yeah exactly and then he just pours (laughs) cement in a room that'd be sick (laughs) that would be good all right i'm back on board for jigsaw versus the mafia yeah (laughs) and this movie kind of came out in an interesting environment because first of all paranormal activity would come out that same exact weekend which it did beat this movie at the box office Mm. but more importantly completely shifted the landscape of horror moving forward was it the first one yeah Wow. It was that very first paranormal activity that kind of took over and every it was a very like word of mouth heavy movie where everyone was like whispering to each other like oh have you heard about this paranormal activity movie? Mm-hmm. You know, that was the beginning of the rise of found footage and uh it was it was uh unfortunately <laughs> at the expense of Saw 6. Yeah. <laughs> but also 
uh, Saul was huge news because we don't really have a franchise right now that's like appointment October releasing. Yeah. But for a long time, Saul was it. Yeah. And it had this huge cultural cachet because regardless of if you liked it or not, people knew what Saul was. You know, it was on the news and on people's lips as an example of what was wrong with horror. And it was in people's DVD players and on their screens because a lot of gorehounds who enjoyed the soap opera nature of it were still getting a lot out of them, you know, even four, five, six into it. Mm -hmm. And so to ensure that that ubiquity continued, Lionsgate actually teamed up with VH1 to create the TV show Scream Queens, where actors would compete in front of James Gunn, uh, Shawnee Smith, who plays Amanda Young in the Saw franchise, and famed acting coach John Homa to earn a role in this very movie, uh, eventually being won by Tanedra Howard, who would play Simone, the lone uh, officer oh uh, and one of Hoffman's players at the very beginning. Is she the one who chops her arm off? Yeah. Oh, my she gosh. Won, she won the role on a reality contest. Jeez Louise. And she does just okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but good for her. Actually, do hey. her. I respect it. Yeah. It's a fun it's a fun cold open for the se- or for the for the movie. Yeah. And uh, Costas Mandylor was returning to the role as Hoffman, uh, having been firmly established as the inheritor of John Kramer's legacy and a former rival to his other protege Amanda who had died in 3 uh, but would be returning to this uh, as well in newly filmed footage for the first time. Hmm. Through 4 and 5 it was just archival footage that they had reused as flashbacks, but for this she actually came back. They filmed a bunch of new stuff for it. Wow. And um, I think that she's one of the stronger parts of the Saw franchise. I think that she does a really good job of kind of uh, playing this villain who you can still empathize with. You, oh, you empathize with her? That's interesting. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I almost kind of see her as the opposite because when Costas, first of all, Costas Mandalore, <laughs> what a badass Star Wars name. And he's he's just such a perfect villain. I mean, that voice, his demeanor, it's great. But the interesting thing about him, even compared to the first Jigsaw, is that like even though he becomes the main bad guy, it becomes this kind of like cat and mouse thing. And that's the mm-hmm. thing with him and the other detective. It's just like he is constantly covering up his own tracks. Yeah. Whereas with Amanda, she just seems like a sick fuck. Um, <laughs> who like will do anything for Jigsaw and because we don't spend a lot of time with her she seems like a a scarier element even though that doesn't end up quite being how it plays but um, mm-hmm. that's how it feels like to me <laughs> yeah I, well I think that that's part of what I like is that devotion is kind of what scares me you know yeah, that, uh, absolutely you know, I think that it's interesting that you bring up that split for uh, Custis as as Hoffman, because uh, he said himself that part of why he likes this character and why he was coming back is because the way the character was torn between fully embracing the madness of being a serial killer and upholding the ideals of the original Jigsaw, who, misguided or not, was in his own way attempting to help people. Yeah, there's nothing, <laughs> there's nothing quite like multiple scenes where a serial killer is getting scolded by a better serial killer for being too <laughs> sloppy. You know, you don't see that really. And yeah. Henry portrait of a serial killer. That's the only other one I can think of. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's just, there's something like mega cynical about it where like you as a viewer, it's just like, yeah, you should listen to jigsaw more. Don't be so sloppy with your murders. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's really interesting. <laughs> 
And speaking of Jigsaw, Tobin Bell also returns, uh, now dead for as many installments as he's been alive. And uh, they also brought in Peter Outerbridge to play William Easton. Uh, I just recently saw him in the movie The Oak Room at a virtual film festival, and he was very good in that as well. Interesting. So, good for you, Peter (laughs) Outerbridge. (laughs) Gruter did want to bring back uh, Carrie Elwes as Dr. Gordon from the very first one, but he was unavailable. He did actually come back for Saw 3D. But by the time they had gotten to that point, uh, the, the character arc that they had planned for him mm. had completely shifted. And so there was talk of him being more of a heroic character than he winds up being. I um, just realized I, I haven't seen Saw 3D. Oh, wow. And should I? I, th- I, I think it's bad, right? Is it bad? Uh, I will say I liked Jigsaw. Okay. Okay. Which is the one after Saw 3D. So it might be worth powering through for. Oh, my gosh. I have so many movies to watch. I well, haven't even then I would say Spiral, maybe so. skip it then. Okay, <laughs> it's not it's not that good. Okay. You could stop at six. <laughs> but they had a budget of eleven million dollars, filming in just uh, two weeks at the beginning of March two thousand nine up in Toronto. They made just under seven million of that back on opening day, but they only wound up with sixty eight point two million dollars, which is the lowest grossing of the franchise. Fuck yeah, it it, it is interesting to me though because I think that. You know, for like I said, for me personally, four and five are a little bit of a dip. And so for people to have kind of like dropped off and then heard that this one was good, seen it on like on DVD or whatever after it had already come out and then being like, oh, it is good again. <laughs> and yeah. then showed back up for Saw 3D. So I guess it makes sense to me. Actually, I, I want to uh, correct myself. I did see Saw 3D because I'm seeing that. Chester Bennington uh, was in the cast. <laughs> he so sure I, was. I definitely saw that because yeah. you know these wounds never heal. Lincoln Park for life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know it was a it's it's a bold strategy for him to be like, yeah, sure, I'll just be a neo Nazi, <laughs> tear tear my fucking back off. <laughs> the funniest part. It, uh, this is a non sequitur, but <laughs> it's literally like a three minute scene where he has to like. <laughs> tears in skin off to like save his other friends and stuff and then (laughs) he goes through all that and then like oh man late late saw is so funny because it'll let someone get so close to saving (laughs) themselves and then it'll they they just won't like they will always fail i think my favorite one was i'm not sure which movie it is i think it might have been like four or something but it's when a dude is just in a room and he's like hooked up to, you know, hooks, uh, just like all over his body, like in his like limbs and in his like ankles and stuff. And then right, he, right, right. he has to pull them out to like get the key. And then <laughs> Jigsaw gives him one minute to do it. <laughs> I have a stand up bit about it where I'm just like, that's not fair, Jigsaw. Come on. Give him two minutes at least. At least. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. You know, reception was frosty, as is the case with most Saw movies, because every Jack and Jill movie reviewer who works for your daily newspaper has to go out and see the new movies. And, you know, if they're not a horror fan, this is pretty extreme for someone who's not into it. And so it winds up having, you know, all these negative reviews, but all the things that they complained about, that was what Saw fans were coming for. Because they're like, there's a convoluted plot and graphic violence. And like, it's like, yeah, that's, that's what I'm here for. Yeah. Every newspaper and uh, magazine should be outsourcing their reviews of horror movies to horror fans. 
Yes, Every, absolutely. It's, it's the same thing with video games. Like anytime, like I, you know, you know me, I'm a weeb. So anytime I see like a major game reviewer just being like, first of all, I have to say, I never liked turn-based RPGs. I'm just like, well, fuck you then. Get some. Yeah, why, this whole review is just out the fucking window. Yeah. <laughs> I will say, in addition to you know the usual people complaining about the violence and everything all the usual suspects who complain about quote-unquote politics and art had incentive to whinge about the healthcare conversation that was raised in this so oh really uh, they all poo-pooed the movie for that reason as well oh what come on i mean <laughs> it's it's there's so many universal truths and i'm glad we finally got to this point because this is why this is my favorite movie as just a hardcore socialist is because the bad guys are just <laughs> insurance companies. Hell yeah. And y- finally, yeah. it's it's the actual villains. <laughs> I, yeah, I would watch an entire franchise just spun off of this one movie of torturing <laughs> insurance company people. <laughs> they just work their way through that company. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, would, uh, I would fucking watch that shit too. Yeah, it doesn't matter if you were on Family Matters and then later got a job killing people, you know. <laughs> We're taking you out. <laughs> Hell yeah. And so to get into the actual movie, I think that I mentioned this when we talked about the first saw on the show, but I love the Twisted Pictures production logo mm-hmm. because I think that it perfectly captures their vibe in a way that basically the only other example I can think of is like Neversoft in terms of yeah. like perfectly encapsulates what they're all about. Yeah, just a rusty screw and an eyeball <laughs> is what the Neversoft one is. Yeah. Um, did they make uh, the Twisted Metal franchise? Because it seems like... <laughs> Ooh, that does seem did. like it would be them. I don't think that that's them, but it does feel like it would fit in with them for yeah. sure. It doesn't matter. It's all the same vibe. <laughs> hell yeah, hell yeah. Um, and so we open up. We open up with these two predatory loan officers, including the aforementioned Simone, mm-hmm. played by the winner of Scream Queens, Tanager Howard. The other is named Eddie. They're both already in a trap. The Awoken. runner up of Scream Queens. It's <laughs> <laughs> close, man. Is this close? She's woken up by a huge roach crawling on her, which is fucking gross. They were like, oh, she can't just wake up. We have to get some bugs in there. <laughs> yeah, had to get some Fear Factor era bugs in there. <laughs> One thing that I always kind of enjoy about these, and I think that this is probably something that you will connect with as well, is that it's always their own panic that yeah. gets in the way a lot, or at least oh, like yeah. prevents strategizing. Like the trap doesn't technically start until she stands up. Yeah. Simultaneously, the most annoying part of every horror movie is just the sheer human incompetence of people, <laughs> but also like as a writer it's just yeah that's that's how you build tension like i i I, so i rewatched that beginning just about an hour ago to prepare for this and yeah the first thing that stood out to me is like you know she wakes up and she goes forward um (laughs) and then the the trap activates and then the very first thing that she says to the guy eddie is don't go forward he's like huh (laughs) what and then he does (laughs) Because of course he does. Yeah, what else is he going to do? Yeah. <laughs> and then he's just like, uh, okay, cool. And then they escape. <laughs> That'd be really fun. But so they've got these head harnesses on them with screws in their temples. And 
Um, this trap is going to reference their jobs demanding technically legal interest rates from their victims uh, and alludes to the pound of flesh bit in Merchant of Venice. Uh, only this time, there's no contract forbidding the shedding of blood. In fact, rather the opposite. They have to carve the most flesh possible off. Yeah. Uh, and whoever's scale holds the most at the end is the one who will survive. This is one of one of Saw's all-time best traps, honestly. Because, mm. first of all, it's a multiplayer game <laughs> where <laughs> you are competing to, you know, scar yourself <laughs> to like out scar it's fucked up it's yeah fucked. It's, it's really great. fucked yeah. up <laughs> i think that it's funny that it feels like they thought about doing like the bank for this maybe instead of healthcare, right and they were like all right well we'll get a little something about like predatory loans and interest rates in there and that'll be our cold open <laughs> and then we'll focus on healthcare. <laughs> yeah it's like where are you gonna go because you have to explain to the viewer everything about like the 2008 the 2008 <laughs> economic crisis <laughs> you you short selled all the all the housing market you know what Ooh. i mean like it was yeah. really <laughs> <laughs> that could have been what was what was the the big short that could have been basically yeah. the big short <laughs> oh man i would watch that movie too yeah me too the big saw yeah that'd be, ooh, shit let's pitch it let's pitch it <laughs> and it looks like eddie is gonna be the one who takes it as he's hacking away at the side of his stomach, which mm-hmm. is really fucking gross. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Until at the last moment, Simone takes her whole damn arm off and the screws go in, killing Eddie. I think that this is this is exactly what I like about Saw, kind of summed up. is mm-hmm. There's a little bit of fun moralizing, some good editing that makes you think you're seeing more than you are. But also, you do get some, some gross-ass, good-looking CGI. Like you can see where the budget went to. <laughs> in this and it's making that look good Mm -hmm. Um, i cannot tell what is cgi at all so (laughs) i'll just say that that's how good it is it turns out that this was set up and being watched by mark hoffman after he had taken over for jigsaw in the previous movies all right i'm gonna give just a super quick kind of synopsis of his arc here is He's been pursued by FBI agent Strom, who was getting close, but at the end of five, in his efforts to kill Hoffman, Strom had brought about his own death by not taking a leap of faith and getting crushed in a room that compressed everything except the glass-filled coffin that Hoffman got thrown into by Strom and was now having his fingerprints planted at the scene by Hoffman to cover his tracks. So that's where that character is at. Yeah. One of the only things I really remember from five was just (laughs) how iconic that ending is to like, (laughs) I mean, not to spoil it, but I mean, we're already on the next movie. So I guess it's not that that much of a spoiler, but the detective goes into a room um, that he thinks is a trap. And then Hoffman, the killer follows him in after, and then they fight and then the detective gets him in the trap, and then it turns out that the whole room is a trap, and the only way out was the trap. <laughs> it's yep. so and then it he lowers great. himself down as he's crushed by these walls. It's sick. It's very cool. <laughs> and it's perfect because, you know, you walk out of that movie, and that's the thing on your mind. that You're talking about that incredible moment yeah. uh, to all your friends as you walk out. That's how you get a sequel, baby. Exactly. <laughs> Very cube-like ending to me. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And I love the moment when Hoffman is investigating Strom's body, and it just, like, falls with a plop. Like, there's some humor in these movies. Like, they're not completely Mm self-serious. And uh, I like that. But 
We also arrive at Umbrella Health, prequel to Resident Evil. Mm-hmm. Who knows? <laughs> it says coverage you can believe in, which is very ironic considering uh, what we're about to see. <laughs> but uh, here we meet health insurance executive William Easton, who is currently blowing off what's implied to be his wife's birthday dinner to go over a deposition that will defend them against Mr. Abbott's family after they're denied coverage for an oral surgery 30 years ago as an undisclosed condition led to his heart disease killing him. Wow. Huge villain right away. No no question about it. The scariest part is that I'm like a hypochondriac, so like when the insurance tells me, it's just like, yeah, your gum disease could lead to heart disease. I'm just like, oh, shit. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm to get my gums checked. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> also, just in case you as an audience don't get it, there's literally a tank of piranhas in his office. Oh, no uh, way. <laughs> yeah, famously ravenous scavengers. Mm-hmm. So they're really like, do you Little get this guy? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he also points out the dog pit already a very dehumanizing name for a group of people who are there to pass that along and strip the humanity of their clients, pouring through documents for a discrepancy to deny coverage over, uh, as evidenced by the Terminator, <laughs> discovering some errors for a chronically ill patient who, quote, lives at the doctor's that could save them $200,000 over the patient's lifetime. Um, again, wow. they, you know, they just, they're like... I'm mad about this fictional person, but... yeah. <laughs> Exactly. It's true. It's how it works. Exactly. It's it's so easy to put yourself in anyone's shoes, in this in this hypothetical person's shoes, because the insurance system is so fucked that almost everyone has had a tough time, you know, getting coverage or mm-hmm. finding a doctor or having to go see a general practitioner before a specialist before you can actually get a surgery. You know, all of the hoops that they make you jump through to see these people be like celebrating it yeah. being like, look, I found a mistake. Yeah. Like, it's just so easy to be like, Oh, I get it. I fucking hate these people. So, so quickly. Yeah. Insurance companies just literally found out a way for capitalists to practice medicine without having a medical license. Like if a doctor wants to perform a surgery and you tell them that they can't, you you're practicing medicine, you know? So, yeah. Yeah. And and that's what Jigsaw says. You know, he, he says that, uh, oh, I thought uh, medical decisions are supposed to be made between a doctor and the patient, but neither one of them actually gets to make the choice. It's the insurance company. And he's absolutely right. And it's the mm-hmm. kind of thing where that's that's kind of where the bread and butter of, of the Saw franchise is, is making you be like, well, I guess I agree with Jigsaw on this point. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you already, you know, by getting you to soften on one point, they break down your barriers and kind of, uh, sneak in and, and tear down your defenses as far as uh, him being a, a villain or not. Yeah. Or at least making it a little more controversial. I mean, he's I, still killing people. <laughs> <laughs> I literally agree with Jigsaw in almost every decision that he <laughs> makes, except for literally one, which is, which is the second death in this movie, which is one of the weirdest ones in the franchise. <laughs> that is the weird one where he kills a janitor because he smokes. <laughs> which is super unfair (laughs) it's just like like, this guy has high cholesterol and he still smokes that's fucked up yeah for someone who is usually punishing people at the root of society's ills probably not killing some random janitor for smoking for a lot of his life 
He's looking around the office like, who else? Who else can yeah. I take here? It's like, I guess secondhand smoke is the thing. <laughs> Hank, you're in the wrong place at the wrong time. Yeah. <laughs> so Hoffman gets called in by the FBI. Uh, his plan seemingly going off without a hitch as far as framing Strom. But Agent Dan Erickson reveals that they found Strom's prints and they need to get him. But that also FBI agent Perez is still alive after Saw 5's trap where like a, a shard of glass yeah. exploded into her throat. I love uh, Perez. I have a crush on Agent Perez. and She's great. I'm glad uh, shards of glass didn't kill her because <laughs> when she didn't show up in the movie after that, I was pissed. I was just like, I can't believe they wrote her off because she asked for more money or something. That, cause, She's I mean, back, baby. Yeah. The, getting killed by glass shards would have been literally the tamest kill in the saw franchise and it would have been one of the only ones that's off screen also yeah she gets a good death in this one though at least she gets to go out in a good way but i don't even remember and i'm so excited (laughs) well we'll get to it (laughs) they're they're like we concealed her for her protection because we couldn't you know guarantee her safety without knowing who it was but this dumbass erickson is like hoffman Please work with us. We're going to tell you every step we make to catch Jigsaw, which, of course, is Hoffman at this point. Mm-hmm. Pam Jenkins, a journalist who wrote a book on Jigsaw, confronts Hoffman about wanting to get access to Jill Tuck, who is Jigsaw's ex, in return for toning down the sensationalism uh, that she's been spreading about Jigsaw. He also talks to Simone, the survivor of the trap at the beginning. She's bitter, but does kind of seem to have uh, like internalized the intention behind it. Mm-hmm. She's like, I understand what he was saying about what we were doing and it being wrong, you know. And then Hoffman's like, well, I guess you learned the lesson then. And, and then she's like, no, I didn't learn. What lesson did I learn? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, well, you did learn the lesson. <laughs> But I also want to call out the scene transitions here because uh, oh, yeah. they're not as flashy as Saw 5, but there are some really nice transitions in this movie the whole way through. And that's just like a, one of the little strengths of this franchise that people don't really ever give it credit for. And like, it's so easy to just do like boring transitions that for them to really put the effort in and be like, yeah, it's going to be like a fun, like yeah. static fuzz that turns into an actual screen or pull out from one security camera and into another one, you know, <laughs> like all these fun little transitions that uh, are Yeah, are we'll good. throw someone through a glass door and then boom, we're in the, <laughs> you know, the police department, you know? <laughs> Hell yeah. We join Jill, Jill Tuck, the, the ex or the widow who was given a box from Jigsaw's will. We also see a flashback to the pharmacy robbery that led to her miscarriage of their baby together. Hmm. And she's being called yet again by Pam and pulls out a photo of Pam from the numbered envelopes that she just unpacked, which is not a good sign for old Pam. (laughs) (laughs) During Eddie's autopsy, they find a clue, uh, which is that the knife used to cut Eddie's puzzle piece uh, had a serrated edge compared to the surgical quality scalpel of John Kramer. Not too difficult to read into that a bit about Kramer's work being much more deliberate as opposed to Hoffman being more reactive to kind of stay ahead of that pursuit, which I think is, you know, an interesting thing to throw in there. Yeah. Also, who's got serrated knives these days? I really got to wonder. <laughs> Hoffman, that freak. Yeah. Such a weird <laughs> thing. Anyway. They also find out that it's the same blade that had been used on Seth Baxter in Saw 5. And he was the one who was Hoffman's victim and the one that had really split Hoffman and Jigsaw mm. because there was no chance of success or escape even after he did what was asked of him. And, right. you know, Jigsaw's whole thing is if they learn the lesson, they get to go. 
And uh, Hoffman said, no, <laughs> this guy just is, uh, this is just revenge. Yeah, man. I do think it's hilarious when Hoffman, who is a police detective, asks, you mean you can tell a different knife was used just by looking at some photos? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yeah, man, that's how it works. They really got the prints on all that stuff real fast, too. Like, they're still <laughs> yeah. on the scene. First of all, Hoffman gets there late and he's surprised when other people are there. It's just like, okay, where were you? <laughs> First of all, and then yeah. they've already gotten the fingerprints back. That usually takes a day or two. I, I know, at least. At least. I know a little bit at least about that. So, <laughs> But they can, in fact, tell that it's the same knife. So the FBI is going to reopen the investigation, analyze the tape that they found at his scene, and try and undistort the voice on it to see if they can figure out if it was actually Jigsaw or Strom, who is who they think it is. And it is, of course, actually Hoffman. But... Hoffman meets with Jill at her clinic and demands the envelopes that she got in the box, which she does give to him, saying that she's just interested in carrying out John's last request and flashes back to his reveal to her of Amanda after her test. And, you know, Jill is kind of an interesting character because there's a question of, like, what is your level of complicity mm-hmm. with this by just kind of letting him do his thing? Like she knows everything that's going on. She knew his plans. She's seen Amanda having survived one of these traps. She's now involved in carrying one out and she just kind of gets drawn into this even from beyond the grave in a really interesting way. Yeah. This might be the most put upon woman in all of cinematic <laughs> history to be completely honest. It's just like, she doesn't completely have a choice to get out of it. Like when it when when all this stuff first starts, it's just kind of like, John, I don't think you should do this. John, I don't think you should buy all this property. And then he sets up all of the, his traps like within just the span of maybe a year or something. Like <laughs> after getting diagnosed with cancer, so he's already an old man. And yeah. then he creates just like sixty rooms full of traps. Like the whole series we're seeing traps that he made during like one, like his blue period, like, like his really fun artistic side. And then the entire time she was just like, Oh man, don't please don't do, don't do this. And then it's just like, I promise I'll find a way for you to get out of it. As long as you do everything I say, and then do a million more favors for me and stuff. So like, I feel bad for her. Like, Every time I see her in the scene, I'm just like, man, just let her get out of this. <laughs> and then by the time that where she's like taking a little bit more agency near the very end, I'm just like, it's hard to blame her anymore. She's just like, yeah. fuck it. You know, <laughs> <laughs> the envelopes indicate that William Easton from the beginning will be the player quote in the game. And we rejoin him in his office where he shoots a security guard thinking that it's someone after him. Another crime that this guy has done probably this one of the <laughs> stupidest reveals i mean it's it's early in the movie so it's it's not a big deal but it's just a big guy in a hoodie yeah. with a gun and then he shoots him and then he oh shit i didn't see your security badge so he's stupid. like oh you have a vest you're gonna be okay like i told you not to wear your security hoodie in the <laughs> in the building he's always shooting those guys yeah but he so he thinks it's someone after him but while he is trying to help this guy after being shot he is in fact actually abducted by hoffman in the pig suit mm-hmm. you know classic iconography it's weird that i feel like they underutilize the pig suit because it's very creepy to me i mean i feel like i don't even know what's going on with it because they use it every time they kidnap people 
and it's just like is that symbolic we've never talked about it it's never been in any promotional no. materials is i actually I, I honestly don't get it <laughs> it's just weird they're just like oh what if the pig had hair and yeah. wore a red robe that would be weird could have had a regular mask even <laughs> i know i like i think it's freaky it's, it's weird yeah. i uh wish maybe that they had explored it a little bit yeah but uh but it's cool Maybe it's because he's a cop. That's why. Could very well be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when he wakes up, he's chained in a vice and wearing this oxygen mask, uh, greeted by a video of Kramer explaining his trap. And interesting to note that since this is from beyond the grave and it no longer actually matters, this is the first video with Kramer actually giving the explanation himself on video. Hmm. So six, six whole movies it took for that to happen. <laughs> yeah, that was weird. Yeah, all of a sudden you're just like, oh shit. It's like, let me put my best robe on. <laughs> and he's like in the wheelchair at that point. He's looking real sickly. Yeah, it's just like, but fuck the puppet. Fuck consistency. <laughs> Let's try something fresh near the end. <laughs> That's You gotta respect it that he was always switching it up. Yeah. But he's decided that Easton, who invented the probability formula used by his company, has allowed the healthy to thrive while the sick are forced even lower. But, he says, this formula doesn't take into account the will to live. So William will have to do four tasks in an hour, each one unlocking one of the straps on his wrists and ankles that will otherwise explode. And I like that they, like, show on the mannequin. They're like, look what will happen. Oh. We went to the effort of setting up these bombs. You're not going to not see them go off. Yeah. (laughs) There is also a threat against his family. And they cut to a mom and her son who've also been abducted. And obviously... We are supposed to intuit that these are his wife and kids mm-hmm. who he was talking to on the phone earlier. This is part of the grand reveal of the whole thing mm-hmm. where uh, we will later find out that this is not, in fact, his family. But it's a very, very cool way and I think says a lot about Kevin Gutierrez's history as an editor in terms of kind of using the Kuleshov effect mm-hmm. for us to just kind of understand what they're trying to communicate, even if it's to mislead us. You know, they use it against us in a really cool way. So they've also been abducted. They're in a room with a lever that says live or die on the ends. <laughs> right to the point, that nice. jigsaw. <laughs> and uh, it's connected to a tank of hydrofluoric acid and their own timer displaying Easton's time. And this, is what I thought was kind of cool, is that I did check, and as far as I could surmise, it does take place in real time. I think like there, there was like 57 minutes and I think that's how much time was left in the movie, which oh, I thought was neat. That's pretty interesting. Do you think yeah. that they ENR'd it in afterwards? <laughs> <laughs> that may very well be. Maybe. Wow. I didn't even think about that. <laughs> it was like, that's the power of editing, baby. Yeah. <laughs> so his, his first task pits him up against, like we said, the office janitor, Hank, every time they breathe in, the vice gets a little tighter. Unfortunately, Hank is a smoker, so he can't last very long and is quickly crushed to death. But as Easton falls out of this vice, he finds that he's got a stitched up gash in his side, indicating to us that something got put inside of him. Mm -hmm. But he's more concerned about the key in front of him, which will let him take off one of the the wrist bombs, which is uh, exciting for him. Pam got a note leading her to Jill Tuck's apartment, where she shows Jill a document that she recovered from the scene of John's death. And when Pam goes to leave... The elevator isn't working, and her alternate route, surprise, there's Hoffman again, always abducting people, snatches her up, brings her in as well. William is moving through. They're in a zoo, by the way, and uh, he's kind of making his way through the aquarium section, where he's forced to choose who lives or dies, as he so often did. As you so often did. (laughs) 
This time it's his secretary, Addie, who's a middle-aged woman with a family history of diabetes, a husband, and kids, versus his file clerk, Alan, a man who will disappear without a trace. (laughs) And, And while he says that he supposedly should be choosing the one who has a capacity for a long, healthy life, as his formula said, he does actually choose Addie. And so this is what Jigsaw is going for, for him to confront the reality of his decisions and see that uh, it's not just about facts and figures necessarily, and perhaps even he shouldn't be making the decisions at all. This is, I I think, the second funniest uh, Jigsaw pick for people to die to because Alan, literally just to show that he's got nothing going on in his life, when they show like <laughs> video of his life, he's just sitting on a bench, just like eating a sandwich hanging. alone. Just hanging. Literally, Jigsaw was just like, this guy's a loser. No one will give a shit. <laughs> he's pathetic. <laughs> that is enough reason to kill him, I guess. <laughs> wow. What a hey, bully. We don't know what he was doing on the side. Yeah. But he does pick the, the older woman. I also will say this is our first look at Billy the Puppet in the movie. I like Billy the Puppet, although as always... I will lament that they took away his cute little hat from the short film that he had when they first were trying to pitch it. He had a cute little bowler hat, and he had a little smile instead, and uh, it was a very fun look for Billy. Man, that might have been too much. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I, uh, you know, I think it would have been a very different series (laughs) if that had been the case, but... Billy is always uh, underutilized, I have to say. It's true. I mean, we should have had half as many pig masks, much more (laughs) Billy masks. Hey, I, I could get on board for that. Yeah. William chose Addie and, and Alan gets hanged to death from a barbed wire noose, which is kind of cool. <laughs> it's yeah. like a, a interesting little twist on it. And she's up there on that tiny little platform still with the noose on after. And he's just like, okay, bye. <laughs> get yeah. out of there however you can, which kind of makes me laugh as well. Got it's like she's up on that platform. How the fuck is she getting out of there? Yeah. I like to think of one of jigsaw's assistants coming in just being like okay you i hope you enjoyed your experience <laughs> don't take pictures of the pictures yeah. but you can buy one at the souvenir stand <laughs> pamela finds herself opposite the family that we saw earlier but in the same kind of cage room with the acid only she's got a tape from kramer to listen to as hoffman is called back to discuss something by the fbi Jill returns to St. Eustace Hospital to drop off an envelope and uh, also to let her into the Kramer box. St. Eustace, I looked this up. I was like, I wonder if that name means anything mm-hmm. to this movie. It's from Kirk's um, The Cowardly Dog. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. They were, they were martyred and yeah. uh, a great show and uh, they recognized that and you had to respect it. It was also a martyr who had his children taken by lions and wolves. Hmm. Which kind of, to me, sounds like how Kramer would view himself. So might be an accident, might not be an accident, but you know you can kind of stretch it to make a connection there. Okay, and, uh, that's what I'm doing. <laughs> we are also treated to another flashback where we see the rising tension between Amanda Hoffman and Kramer, who seems to be uh, distressed at Hoffman's brutality. And then this jumps even further back as we see more of John Kramer's relationship to William, the guy who's going through this game right now, Mm. Uh, specifically his being turned down for an experimental gene therapy for his cancer and saying that not only is he not covered for it, but that if he even pursues it, John will be dropped from his coverage entirely. Mm, Rude. You know, this is where he gives that, uh, that little monologue about doctors and patients and uh, they sacrifice people for the almighty dollar. And, you know, you can't say that this movie is subtle, but honestly, I kind of appreciate that they're just like laying the message out there for people and being like, 
insurance companies fucking suck and you should think that they suck too. Yeah. And I'm like, fuck yeah. Just lay it out there for people. I don't want this to be like subtext. Yeah. And this was a decade ago too. I mean, that's how true it's been. Yeah. Not a new thing. No. And uh, back at the game, we join William now in the zoo's boiler room. There we find the lawyer who was prepping him early, Debbie. She has to cross a hot maze in this room while being navigated and assisted by William. But the real trick is that to show him what people are willing to do in a fight for their life, Jigsaw has placed the key in the wound in his gut. Classic Jigsaw move. Classic. He loves putting keys in people. That's like his number one thing. Yeah, and it's just like, oh, man, how can I spice up this... <laughs> heat steam maze that i've <laughs> that's literally the most complicated thing i've ever done in my life oh i don't know i know <laughs> now they're gonna have to fight like friggin' texas chainsaw massacre too at the end yeah i will say the key thing is always fun because a lot of times they have to like dig into it themselves which really grosses me out mm -hmm. but the eyeball one is like seared into my memory where the key was like behind their eye and they had to like tear out their own damn eyeball and freaking reach in there and pull that shit out yeah i forgot about that one until you brought it up but thank you <laughs> <laughs> it's gross as hell that's a good ass one but she does attack him with this friggin' buzzsaw, and he fights her off until the spear gun harness that she's wearing shoots up through her head, sparing him. Ugh. And he advances to his final test, but he doesn't enter after hearing bickering from inside, because it's the dog pit behind the spiral-painted door. We let the dogs out. <laughs> That's right. Well, who, who took the dogs in? Yeah. More like <laughs> yeah. it. And uh, there's a big spiral on the door. It's very dramatic, although I think it's less about what would eventually become spiral and more about mm -hmm. playground roundabout because as he enters he discovers quite the mechanism and one of my personal favorite traps from the whole uh, absolutely from the whole franchise this is a real good one yeah this is a high mark for me like from so many aspects from a horror aspect for like a writing aspect for a character aspect it's got a lot going on for it yeah they've all been strapped to it and as it rotates a shotgun will fire at each of them but Easton can save two of them by getting stabbed as he presses the buttons to symbolize the blood on their hands from causing the termination of coverage and denials. And what part of what makes this so good is that as they're spinning around, the sort of decorum and civility that they have starts to break down. Yeah. Where first they're just like pleading with him like, oh, please save me, save me. Then when he finally chooses to save someone, uh, the woman who has two kids... They immediately, now there's only one slot, they start selling each other out, lying to save themselves. This is so effective. And of course, there's the added metaphorical application where they kind of represent everyone else asking insurance companies to please help them out. And they're choosing to deny two thirds of the people. You know, you see all these people who are doing everything that they can because yeah. they all they want is to be saved. And ultimately, this guy is only choosing to save two of them. Yeah. Also, truly brutal for this one, the guy at the end, to have to go around one more time <laughs> once Easton <laughs> has already saved that the two people. And, you know, again, you can kind of be like, oh, well, it's much the same way. It's brutal for people to turn down me. by insurance. <laughs> Look at me when you kill me. Dude, that's such a great line. I really think that that guy is making a meal out of that performance. <laughs> I would, too. If I was in that scene, man. Woo. He's screaming at him. It's it's a great, it's a memorable trap. Mm -hmm. I think that uh, it, it's it's a lot of fun. Yeah. Plus, we got Darius McCrary in there from Family Matters. So hell yeah. <laughs> Always wanted to see a, a cast member of Family Matters die. Just just not that one. But there we go. <laughs> 
It's like the one more finger on the monkey's paw curls. All right, yeah. (laughs) But Hoffman has been called back to the audio lab to hear this tape. But by now, Erickson and Perez have found some incongruities. Uh, Not only did the motivation for Strom not make a ton of sense, besides setting up Hoffman as a jigsaw accomplice, but also they discovered... He was already dead when he left those fingerprints. Bum, oh. bum, bum. This is the part in the Saw movie where I'm just happy to see all the characters again. And I'm, I <laughs> stop following the logic. I'm just like, I'm just going to tr- trust that these detectives know what they're talking about. <laughs> all of these little things are getting teased out mm-hmm. and the audio is getting clearer and clearer. And one thing I really love to speak to really appreciating the performance of Hoffman uh, here is that he really does feel like an animal in a cage, the way he's like pacing around yeah. and feeling kind of trapped there. And he's just like walking around the room and they're like, are you like, are you okay? And he's like, oh yeah, I'm just like anxious about the tape. But it really ties in perfectly to the setting of this one, which is in the zoo. So, it, you know, it's kind of very appropriate for his game. Uh, it all feels very specifically tailored to him, this setting, which is not easy to do when he's, you know, so entwined with the jigsaw area and, you know, the fact that he's imitating someone for there to still be a little bit of his own flavor to it, I think is uh, is interesting and impressive. This is honestly the first time I'm realizing that it takes place <laughs> at the zoo. <laughs> I'm just, and I'm just trying to think of what animals were in that steam room. <laughs> <laughs> I think that, that might have just been a steam room. Yeah, I guess uh, just an <laughs> extremely complicated one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> jigsaw was like, all right. Bring in all the freaking grading and everything. <laughs> yeah, did you know that the end of uh, Terminator 2 also took place in a zoo? <laughs> yeah, he smelt some inside of... Uh... Exactly. Oh, yeah. It's, <laughs> every zoo's got to have one. Yeah. <laughs> the Philadelphia Zoo has a really nice one. You can actually take tours. <laughs> but the audio finally snaps into place, and they're all distracted by it obviously being Hoffman's voice. And so he slashes the throat of Erickson and then throws hot coffee in Perez's face, uses the tech as a human shield as she shoots at him, and then stabs Perez a whole bunch of times in the gut, just friggin' shanking the hell out of her. And then he runs out to his car. <laughs> he runs out to his car. He grabs Strom's severed hand, which he's been holding on to this whole time. Oh. <laughs> Turns out he kept it just in case. He leaves a bunch of prints there to implicate Strom again and then burns down the place with Erickson still clinging to life inside. Just really being like, fuck it. You know, I'm invested at this point in for a penny in for a pound here. Uh, he just, he, wow. he's murdered, leaving a trail of corpses behind him. You can tell that he definitely is sloppy. I mean, at what point in an extremely long string of murders, you just kind of like be like, okay, fuck it. <laughs> Let me do everything here. This is the point. Yeah. (laughs) He heads back to the game, and he finds a letter that Jill left there for him. It's the blackmail that he did to Amanda to kill Lynn in Saw 3, which is the surgeon. This letter is also where we find out that she was the one who instigated the pharmacy robbery, which is where Jill had the miscarriage, which is where her and John's life turned upside down. And so, you know... Yeah, you can kind of be like, oh, it was the whole thing is predicated on this one moment. Everything is connected. The ripples in time. That's a little too much. (laughs) (laughs) It is kind of funny. I I, I don't mind it because there's so much of that already in the movies to me that in another franchise, it probably wouldn't have worked for me. But in this one, I'm just kind of like, okay, sure. Yeah, (laughs) it's all her. 
But earlier in the movie, Pam gave Jill that letter after finding it at the crime scene. And so she now has it. She shows him. Meanwhile, the kid and his mom are in the room and running out of time. So he prepares to pull the switch, but it does nothing. And so they're all freaking out as well. Hoffman gets knocked out by Jill Mm -hmm. while Easton finally arrives at the finish. And this is where we discover the big rug pull that Pam is his sister and who he was on the phone with at the beginning. And of course, an interesting swerve because we're led to assume that when Jigsaw says you'll never see your family again, he was talking about this woman and her son. Mm -hmm. In actuality, they are not related to Easton and in fact hate him because they are Tara and Brent Abbott, the family of Harold Abbott, the man we saw Easton removing from coverage earlier now officially dead of heart disease and the one suing him that he was being prepped for at the beginning. Dang. So I guess he did get gum disease, which led to the heart disease. <laughs> you got to watch those gums, everyone. Brush, brush and, fro- brush and floss. I'm going to do that right <laughs> after this. <laughs> the TV crackles to life and Kramer tells them that Easton made sacrifices to save the life of a loved one. Now they get to decide if he himself gets to continue living. As they play their game, Jill continues in the observation room. It turns out that the box had a sixth envelope with Hoffman's photo and the reverse bear trap that held Amanda in her game, and uh, she straps him into that reverse bear trap. So a lot of stuff happening simultaneously. Things are really heating up. The rising action, denouement, all the classics. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) (laughs) And then the classic errors of humanity. Yeah. Just fucks up (laughs) he sure does and uh easton is pleading for mercy tara goes to kill him but can't brent on the other hand no such qualms Mm -hmm. hot-headed young man with a recently deceased father you know he's 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 not feeling well he slams the lever down this swings a platform of needles down and injects him all over with acid and he melts in this friggin grody as hell fashion i love it this like last second moment of huge gore, like what a friggin' leave it all on the floor moment for them. Yeah, it should be all at the end as well too. And we've never seen one that's like quite this horrific, honestly. This might be yeah. the grossest one. Yeah, but it's like it comes at such a moment. It comes at it comes at like a fist pumping fuck yeah moment where the kid is just <laughs> like, Well, I can, because I would have too. I would have killed him. <laughs> <laughs> Also, like, even though you're seeing this insurance salesman go through, I mean, um, agent go through so many trials and stuff, he ends up still fucking up like a bunch of these trials. He makes choices that aren't exactly what the audience might make. Yeah. He just genuinely kind of is incompetent. Like, he (laughs) kind of half seems like he's trying to save everyone but yeah yeah he's just the whole time he's like ah why i don't want to do any of this can't y'all figure it out it's an interesting um uh comparison to the movie right before this where (laughs) where it's first of all you have a black cop who his his biggest vice is that he keeps trying to save people and every time he tries to save someone they end up dying which is yeah kind of funny (laughs) yeah you know it is kind of uh an interesting way to, to play it where, you know, you're kind of your own worst enemy in a lot of these for jigsaw. Yeah. Um, and he, he kind of lets you bring your own downfall about, but Hoffman's timer starts and he breaks his hand trying to escape the restraints, then jams the mask in between some metal bars. As it activates, he tears his cheek apart to escape. And as he screams, we cut to black, unsure if Hoffman will survive to saw another day or if he will perish deemed by John to be, 
unworthy. In fact, Costas was even unsure if Hoffman was going to survive at the end because mm. they shot multiple endings, including one where freaking Strom had set up a trap in revenge in case he died in pursuit of Hoffman. What? So, yeah. You know, they, they were like, we're going to have all kinds of different paths that this could take. Wow. That would not have made sense. <laughs> <laughs> no. And then after the credits, we get a quick little scene of Amanda going up to Corbett Denton, the daughter of the player in Saw 3, and whispering to her while she's still locked up in that little safe. You know, I remember there was the little girl who was like trapped in the safe and she was, he was trying to get to her the whole time. Mm. She, she whispers to her while she's still locked up. Don't trust the one who saves you. Uh, one final fuck you to Hoffman from her and setting up some revenge. If Hoffman does in fact make it out of here, the end, end of saw Finn. Nice. <laughs> and, uh, and I think it's great. You know, I think that it's a super fun movie that, uh, that does a lot with, uh, a franchise that could very easily have been stale at this point. But mm-hmm. before I get to that, Brody, we've reached the point of the show where we sum up why this is not just a good horror movie, but is in fact the best horror movie ever made. Uh, and I'm going to let you start. I mean, every, I mean, even though we just went through all the plot, every set piece really is just like heightened more than the rest of the franchise because there is this illusion of choice there is this illusion of there is a right answer there is a hope of someone's life being saved and kind of with like the other movies before that we're seeing someone get trapped in something and then you know that they're not going to survive but they can probably get out like super maimed or something and this is one of the first times we're seeing a whole movie being predicated on torturing one person through torturing other people Mm -hmm. and it's just great. <laughs> yeah. It's it's filled with a lot of no-win scenarios, which I like. It's by, by its nature, it's got a lot more uh setting up in like plot in like outside world references than I'm usually like privy to. One of the reasons I'm really drawn to things like the cube and like Hyperion Cantos and stuff is because you start with the torture and you end with in the same facility there's there's not outside stuff you have to find out and if you do it's through like these context clues and stuff Mm. this movie isn't like that and it still ends up working for me just because of a lot of the elements in the franchise that we talked about before but i mean like it really all just comes back to the theme as cruel as all of these tortures are none of them really seem as cruel as being an insurance person (laughs) none of them truly are and big head shake from george for those who can't see right now so that's what it really comes down to for me is like that's that's the lasting part where like before i'm just interested in seeing you know what happens with the plot of the story but this is the first time where i was like oh i'm actually rooting for not i guess not jigsaw because he's already dead but like (laughs) yeah his ideas are definitely like flawed he'd probably be like a libertarian or something but like the symbol lives on though yeah (laughs) but like i i i I sort of get it i mean the one i think two movies before this when they explore like real estate people that one was similarly good Mm. but then i think the main theme of that one was just like can you just work together (laughs) you know what i mean (laughs) very simple efficient concept and that's where i thought that's where like the franchise got really good and then for me this was just a refinement of that and 
that's why I think this is just like the best that the Saw franchise has to offer, period. To me, this is the best horror movie ever made because where a lot of the Saw movies have kind of gestured at stuff, the fact that this really takes a theme and fully explores it and is 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 really trying to communicate something to people, I think is great. And I think that it really does help bring this, the franchise to a new level. And it would be interesting if, if that was all it had going for it. It would still be interesting. Yeah. But for the, the franchise to reach high points for gore with the dissolving guy at the end, mm-hmm. to have really interesting traps like the roundabout shotgun pole where he has to choose which two, you know, some fun performances in that very scene. Mm-hmm. The very first trap is fun as well, like we talked about. And so it has all that stuff going. The longtime editor being in charge of it really helps to make the whole thing feel cohesive and Mm -hmm. make sure that the editing is on point, which is so crucial for a movie like this that is jumping around so frequently, both in time and in place. For us to be able to even just be aware of what's happening, I think is is a testament to their ability to keep the editing on point. And uh, there's just so much good about this movie. And for it to be in a franchise that a lot of people won't give the time of day for no reason, mm-hmm. and to be late in that franchise and really to hit a new high point, that's just fascinating to me. And uh, the fact that it says something is just icing on the cake. So that's why it's the best horror movie ever made. Brody, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show, man. Uh, Please tell everyone where they can listen to you, see your writing, all that jazz. Well, you could follow my podcast, as George mentioned, uh, the Dark Weed podcast I do with my friend Cody Ziegler, where we... Friend of the pod. Friend of the pod, where we talk about (laughs) nerd stuff, all kinds of nerd stuff, from video games to anime to giant robots, um, and try to focus on people of color, for sure. Then you can also listen to um, The Male Gaze, which is the podcast I do about current events with some other comedy friends of mine. And then by, I think by the time this comes out, I might have an EP, just a serious music EP that I made during the pandemic that might be out wow. called The Boohoo's The Slump. So you might want to check that out. It's probably got like five songs. I'm saying probably. I'm like, I'm, like, I'm like mixing it right now. And if it's not out yet around the corner yeah exactly then uh, i'm i do comedy all over the place so you can just follow me on twitter at ao bro bro and if i come in your town definitely come see me at a show and tell me that you <laughs> listen to the uh, podcast and then i'll treat you better than other people at the show for sure that's that's the hip promise baby <laughs> yeah yeah i definitely encourage you to check out all that stuff in particular i am a fan of the dark weed podcast i think it's great thanks man i think you guys are both great on it and uh as far as my plugs you can check me out on twitter at little horror phl we're on patreon as well if you want bonus episodes including just more spotlights where we're not as constrained by the best quote unquote and uh you know kind of just like movie argument episodes and stuff where i'll throw out a topic and then decide between two litigants all kinds of fun stuff and um also uh last thing is if you want another mailbag episode you can send in more questions comments hypotheticals all that stuff to uh, best little mailbag at gmail.com that's it everyone thanks bye bye